Hello. Hey. Wow. Wow. We, we are here. We are. It's Ergo. It is indeed. I'm Damon. I'm Kiss. And this is a remarkable one. This is one of those. We had the opportunity and the gift of sitting and talking with Bill Ayers. Bill is a lifetime movement worker. He was one of the co-founders of the Weathermen. He was a professor for decades at UIC. He's written innumerable books and is a really beautiful community member here in Chicago and just has so much to give. And we were so grateful to get to sit in the room with him and and talk. I was moved. One of the points of growth of our show is as we have expanded and become more intergenerational and being able to to learn with and be in conversation with some of our elders, particularly our elders in movement. And so Bill was a really great entry point into firsthand accounts Hmm. of history. Um, and a lot of history that usually gets marginalized, while also, I think, giving us an interesting context of what's going on today. So for those who don't know, or maybe a little younger, um, in 2008, Bill Ayers became a figurehead or, or, or a symbol of terrorism and, and evil radicality as, you know, conservative folks were trying to undermine the Obama campaign. Uh, so we talked very briefly about that in the scope of this great conversation, but he is a significant person, a significant educator, and it was really a privilege to talk to him. The only other piece of context, which we did not say, you should just go and read about his life in one of his books or just online. Um, but what the Weathermen did and what they were attacked for and what forced them into hiding for decades was they planted bombs at unoccupied federal government buildings. So these bombs detonated. No people were hurt. They made sure that no people were hurt. Um, but it was an act of, I'm trying to remember the phrase he used. It, you'll, you'll hear what he says. But he said was, bringing war to the warmongers. Exactly. So we get his perspective on that, this current political moment, uh, how to stay in on the cosmic joke <laughs> and raising his sons and so much more. Without further ado, folks, Bill Ayers on Ergo. So far, my list of, of note bringers. Do you know Matt McCoglin from um from Bonfont? So Matt brought notes and Barbara brought notes. Barbara Ransby? Yeah. yeah. Oh, Ransby was yeah, here? Yeah, my oh, my yeah, comrade. Yeah, I yeah, love yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. My, my, my movement mother. Yeah, <laughs> no, she's the best. And she's the Ella Baker of our time. Absolutely. I mean, she not only wrote about Ella, but yeah. she is Ella. Yeah. You should have uh, seen her face when Damon said that to her. And she was like, <laughs> you said that to of her? Of course. She was man. like, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. the ways that she's just, the way that she is exactly like Ella Baker. That's very Ella Baker to do, though. Yeah, exactly. That's the point. And actually, Actually, she's very much like Ella Baker in a variety of ways. She's a stone-cold revolutionary communist and always has been. And she's non-affiliated and she's non-frontline. Uh, mm-hmm. She's a person who's always, always, always giving other people strength. I love her. And she lives a block away from me. And so now we have breakfast together in the park. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's the cutest thing ever. <laughs> when did y'all meet? Uh, we met when she came over to UIC from DePaul. Oh, okay. So that must be 20 years ago. Okay. And when I was denied emeritus status at UIC, she organized a ceremony called the People's Emeritus, and they <laughs> gave me an, an emeritus degree from the people. Because uh, UIC, UIC took it away from me, so yeah. fuck them. <laughs> anyway. This is, a, this is a pretty unique it's, and special it's one. It's an exciting one. I can't believe that I get to say we're in the studio with Bill Ayers. Amazing educator, organizer. I'm going to call you a historian, even though I don't know that you call yourself that. This is another one who I feel like we have to ask the question. We have to ask? Okay. This has become an unnecessary but (laughs) regular preamble on the show. If you could have any animal noise as your entrance music, what animal noise would you pick? Osprey. 
Ooh, I don't even know what that is. That's a that's you were a ready serious to go. bird of prey. <laughs> you got to Google it. Okay. Ospreys are no joke. You why, would know. Why an osprey? I happened to live for many, many years in California, and above my house was an osprey nest. <laughs> and they are not only beautiful and wild, but the mother osprey would leave every morning at dawn and head up to the Russian lakes and come back with fish for the babies. <laughs> and there was something both about the the nurturing nature of it and the predatory mm. nature of it that mm. made it uh, made it a special bird for us. So I love the osprey. Mm. Mm. They make their nests so high up. Way too. up in a, in a dead thing. tree typically. Yeah. And the nests are distinctive and little babies are there with their beaks up and mama shows up with a big fish and feeds <laughs> them all and then goes out hunting. Oh, wow. <laughs> there was a... Uh, a hawk nest across the street from where my girlfriend lives. So we watched this summer the hawks be born and then learn to fly. In, the, then, in Chicago? Yeah, in Palmer Square Perfect. Park. And then be down on the ground in the park chasing squirrels. Love so it. So they would like take four steps and then a little flight yeah. and then land and the squirrel would scamper off. It was yeah. like watching like batting practice. <laughs> yeah, well, I love it that hawks have made a comeback in the city. There's yeah. a lot of owls in the city. Yeah. But up where I am, the eagles have made a comeback, and so mm. have mountain lions, um, wow. which is kind of great. I, I saw my first mountain lion probably 50 years ago, mm. and it was a very rare sighting. It was four in the morning on a mountain road in rural California, and this summer I saw three. Unlike California black bears, which are gentle and kind, uh, a mountain lion is an aggressive and, and dangerous animal, but they also are quite beautiful. Mm. Well, let, we'll we'll get back to the yeah, to yeah. the mountain lions there's, and the bears. There's and all metaphor that, but... in all of that. I think. I think <laughs> there's a metaphor in everything. <laughs> yeah. You so, got to be careful with that. So that game gets away from you. We, we have another intentional tradition that we like to start our conversations with, and it's a it's a two part question. And so, in this time, and define time however you will. So, this hour, this day, this season, this lifetime, how is the world treating you, and how are you treating the world? Well, you know, one of the things that has been a contradiction for me for a long time is that. I have a hard time reconciling with how personally happy I am. Mm. Partly that's a genetic <laughs> flaw um, that I picked up from my mother. But partly it's just true. It's many, many blessings, many, many uh, opportunities. And I am personally very well off, very happy. Mm. And yet I look at the state of the world and as it spirals down into chaos and as the architecture of fascism is put into place, I fear for all of us. And I... I spent a lot of time not only thinking about, but reacting to and acting on this political moment. And um, I think you could characterize this moment as a moment of real dread and fear and danger, and at the same time, uh, a moment of huge opportunity like right. we've not seen really in 50 years. Mm -hmm. And so I, I want to put my shoulder on the wheel of possibility, and that's what I try to do every day. Mm. That um, you're ready. <laughs> well, that whether it's a tension or contradiction or just a reality that you're saying of discomfort with the happiness that you feel. One, I think that's relatable for a lot of people who do this work and are able to find joy in it, and even for people who aren't doing quote the work, trying to deal with the contradictions of the outside world and then the ways that we build joy and love and peace in our inner worlds. Yeah. What have you learned about how to do that? Well, yeah, I don't know if you noticed in our, our first email communication, I signed my email joy and justice mm -hmm. Mm. because I think that's a, a tension and a dialectic that we need to hold on to. Mm. And sometimes I feel in the darkest hours that our personal happiness is a form of resistance. Mm -hmm. Just like I think that conversation is a form of resistance. Right. I mean, in a time when the public space 
is being eclipsed, when the public square is disappearing, when any concept of the community or the public yeah. is under attack. A space like this, this little... Our padded room. What the hell are we in? <laughs> yeah. This little container that yeah. we're in, this padded cell, yeah. uh, in, a, in a way becomes a form of resistance and becomes the place where the public can be enacted, the public can come into being. So for me, um, I think it's terribly important that I take care of my grandchildren, mm. that I um, get up and um, uh, go for a bike ride on the lake. Mm. That's hugely important to me. Um, those kinds of things matter. And at the same time, you have to be ready to um, go out and engage the, the larger public every day as well. So holding on to that tension is a way to kind of keep your bearings and to not either fall into a deep pit of narcissism or a deep pit of despair. Just avoid the pits. Yeah, keep the pits out, exactly. <laughs> Although it's not easy in here. I got to say, we're in a little tight spot. With yeah. the, this isn't the most joy-filled room well, aesthetically. Well, not but aesthetically. We, yeah. yeah, there's not. There's a lack of oxygen, and yeah, I feel yeah. like that's part of your plot. <laughs> you're going to yeah. cut off my oxygen, it's, see what I say. It's Tulsi has my pits sweating. Yeah, <laughs> try to avoid pits in many ways. But yeah, I do think that, I think that's a, a, a tension to not only hold on to, but to live in. And one of the things that I've felt really all of my adult life is that we spend too much time trying to get away from contradictions when what we, what we ought to do is dive into contradictions mm -hmm. and swim in them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that I feel is very important in terms of I teach writing, especially to the graduate students. And I often argue to them that the best parts of your writing are where you find the contradictions. And yet the American impulse is to go right to the conclusion. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of keeping the contradiction alive, you dive to one side or the other and say, mm -hmm. but okay, this is how I'll or resolve it. Or you discard the parts that make it contradictory. Exactly. Right. And then you want to be comfortable because living in contradiction is actually living off balance. It's living, uh, you know, with one foot in the here and now and one foot in a possible world, and that's not easy. That's yeah. a hard act to balance. Mm -hmm. But I think we have to do that if we're going to stay alive. Do, do you have any examples of that process of, of holding and reconciling contradiction? Because uh, for me, my entry point into this notion of the beauty of contradiction and, and dialectical process, I entered that through reading the bogs. Which book did you read? Uh, I've read a few, but, but Revolution and Evolution in the 20th Century is my the most important work of my life. It's a great book, and, and Grace was a a friend and a mentor. Hmm. I had breakfast with her on her 100th birthday. Oh, wow. Um, just Bernadine and me and Grace. What'd you have for breakfast? We remember? had scrambled eggs and toast. And, <laughs> uh, but Grace was a, a giant, and, yeah. and so was Jimmy. Mm -hmm. um, but so your question, back to your question, I felt yeah. flew No, I mean, no, that, that's more exciting. Than that. <laughs> I'll tell you a Jimmy Boggs story in yes, a little bit. Ahead, but, but No, tell the story, and then we'll come back. We'll put a pin. Damon doesn't lose I, the pin when I'll he put puts a pin the pin in it. In it. Okay, I... I uh, <laughs> I went to the University of Michigan, okay. and the first time I met Jimmy, I was probably 20 years old, and he had come up to Michigan. There was a conference, I believe it was Black Power and uh, kind of Black Nationalism, mm -hmm. and you know, a lot of it was very on point, a lot of it was very good, and a lot of it was stuff that um, you know, serious radicals and revolutionaries can endorse. But there was also an edge that was kind of romanticizing mm -hmm. the African, the ancient mm -hmm. African civilizations mm -hmm. and stuff. So one guy was going on and on and on about that. And uh, when he was finished, Jimmy stood up and said, 
I don't know about y'all, but to me, a king has always been a son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, I thought, yeah. yeah, that's that's it, you know. So so you can romanticize all the African yeah. kings you want. <laughs> One of the greatest places that I saw that contradiction spelled out was in um, between the world and me, Tanahisi Kosa's mm -hmm. piece, where he talks about how he got into a very romanticized notion mm -hmm. of of the the motherland yeah. and so on. That Queen and Zinga story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. and then he he has a professor say, yeah, but she sat on another uh -huh. human being. Yeah, yeah. So she was asserting her dignity on one level, but on another level. Now that's an interesting kind of contradiction, yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I'll tell you, I can think of so many, and they and they really power so much of how I think about things. Um, but I'll just give you one simple example from uh, one of my graduate students. So mm -hmm. a white woman who had taught in a black school for 30 years, she had a, a deep and abiding relationship with this school, with this community, and she wanted to write her dissertation about this school. Mm -hmm. So she comes into class and she's telling us how much she wants to do this, but she also says, you know, but the problem is I'm white and I really shouldn't do it mm -hmm. because I can't really represent that experience in the way that it ought to be represented. And then she said, but on the other hand, I'm a good white person. I'm not racist, you know? And then she goes down that way for a while. And so what she's trying to do as she explains that contradiction is she's trying to resolve it. Either she is or she isn't going to write mm -hmm. about it. The trick is to hold on to the contradiction and to keep it a contradiction no matter what. So the answer isn't, I'm a good white person, therefore I can do it. Mm -hmm. The answer is, how do I hold on to the fact that I am a white person with this perspective, without access to certain things, and still do this work? And that's, mm -hmm. to me, very complicated. We could go to this morning's news or we could go to... All that's roiling the campuses these days. Yeah. I mean, trigger warnings, not trigger warnings. You know, I mean, that's not a question that a teacher has to agonize about very much because a teacher is in touch with his or her students. Right. A teacher is empathetic mm. to those students. Right. It's not a formal thing it's written by the- It's not a question the, of theory. It's yeah, empathy. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's, and so the president of the University right. of Chicago can issue a statement and pretend he's on the side of, of God. But the reality <laughs> is that as a normal person interacting right. with my normal students, of course I'm aware of the contradictions in their lives. Of course I want to be empathetic and understanding. And also I want to challenge them. So how do you as a teacher mm -hmm. nourish and challenge in the same gesture? That's a contradiction. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think there's a formula that answers that right. for you. That's the problem with giving up on contradictions. You become linear and formulaic mm -hmm. rather than alive to the tensions that actually drive us forward. So there was a thing on the radio this morning. Uh, there's a... a festival in France, all American films. And Roman Polanski is there and Woody Allen is there and Nate Parker's there. Mm -hmm. None of them can get their films released in the United States. Mm. Nate Parker, you know the yeah, name? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Nate Parker, I don't know if you saw um, Birth of a Nation. I didn't. Fantastic movie. And the question is, can you hold on to two ideas at once? Mm -hmm. Can you hold on to the idea that this is a great movie and this is a flawed human being? Or can you hold on to the idea that this is a great movie, this is a human being who's been accused of something but acquitted of something? Mm -hmm. And are, how long are we going to allow that program to hmm. unwind in his actual lived life, mm -hmm. not in theory? Right. That's the, that's, yeah. that's what I, I guess that's the way I would, I would go to this is that, 
Contradiction is how we live our lives. Mm. Theory is how we wish we lived our lives. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and we wish it were so clean and yeah. neat, but that's not where life is. Yeah. So was there a period in your life where you were much less comfortable with contradiction? How did you learn to be comfortable, or not comfortable, to be willing to, to live in it? it? Yeah, to be uncomfortable with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, I think I, I wrote a couple of memoirs. One is called Fugitive Days. Um, Thank you for bringing it. It's over copy, there sitting the in front of you. Uh, you know why I brought it? Because I just moved from our house of 30 years into an apartment, and I uncovered a box of 20 of those things. So I thought, maybe I can unload it on these guys. They seem innocent. Um, Happy to be your thrift store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're more so than willing. I'm, I'm decluttering, and, and you're, the, you're the recipient. We're, the, we're um, radical Marie Kondos out here. Yeah, exactly. But Fugitive Days is, is really the story of, of the years of the American War in Vietnam told by a veteran of the resistance, not mm-hmm. a veteran of the war itself. I talk in there about a period of time, which is kind of the famous moment of the birth of the weathermen, when we let go of contradiction completely, and we were absolutely certain of what mm-hmm. we were doing. And the one thing I can say for sure is that when you feel self-righteous, you are wrong <laughs> in, in feeling self-righteous. I mean, you might be on the right side, yeah. but... My you know, right analysis. But. You know, holding on to the messiness of life is hugely important. So there was a period in 1969-70 when we became quite dogmatic, quite um, shrill, quite uh, sectarian, and certain of ourselves. And dogma is really the end of thought. Mm-hmm. And the problem with dogma is that we all can identify the dogma of the bad guys. Nobody listening to this doesn't understand the dogma of the House Republicans. Right. But that's too easy. Right. It's your own dogma that's a problem. It's your own common sense. And if you're listening to the current political, national political ebb and flow, and you can just see the ways in which common sense is the most insistent dogma of all. Right. So how do you frame something? So I was listening to the most recent debates. Um, I, I know. Why you I did know, that? I know, I know, I know, I know. It's silly. But I was also eating chocolate. Um, but, but, <laughs> so at least something yeah, worthwhile exactly. came out. It was a contradiction. <laughs> but, but, the, but the thing that's crazy is that the way that the media and, and the, the capitalist media and the um, drug companies and the neoliberals and the establishment candidates are going to frame this thing is they're going to say, do you want to take away someone's health care? That's how it's framed. Yeah. That's got nothing to do with what's being yeah. discussed or what's happening. But as long as you frame it, you're going to take away health care from 10 million people or 30 million people. Well, that sounds like a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But actually, that's not what's happening. But that's how it's been framed. And this goes on and on. We just saw this hurricane rip through the Bahamas. Yeah. Of all the national networks, cable and broadcast, all the national networks, climate change was mentioned once. Now, that's, <laughs> that's a framing right. that, that takes away the reality and undercuts it. And, and so I think we have to worry about not only how we frame things, but how if something is smooth and easy and clear, then you're probably barking up a very simple-minded tree. Yeah. And, and you want to keep it complicated. And, and and this is difficult because you also want to be able to act. So That's what I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah, how so, do you, you know, then it becomes less about like, this is the pure, correct act and more about like faith that I'm moving in the right direction here. It's, it's, it's doing the best you can with <laughs> what you've got. And so <laughs> I would argue that there's a rhythm 
to activism, and it's, it's a rhythm to living a moral life. It's a rhythm to being a good resident or citizen. And the rhythm is simple to say and excruciatingly difficult to enact. <laughs> and the rhythm is simply this. Open your eyes and pay attention. Mm-hmm. Be astonished. Be astonished at both the beauty and the ecstasy that's all around us. Also be astonished at the unnecessary pain and suffering that we visit upon one another. You have to be astonished. And if you get used to it, if you get used to seeing homeless kids in Chicago, Mm -hmm. and most of us are, then you're not following the rhythm of being a moral person or an Mm -hmm. activist. Mm -hmm. You have to open your eyes, you have to be astonished, then you have to act, and the most important thing then is you have to doubt. If you act and don't doubt, and that's what we did in 1969, Mm -hmm. that's the road towards self-righteousness, that's the road to a million errors. So how do you keep alive to that? You try to follow that rhythm. And as I say, it's easy to say, but actually opening your eyes is excruciatingly difficult. Why? Because we're patterned to not look, to not see, to ignore, to take for granted, and demanding that you see things anew, not once. If you see it once and have it figured out, then you're going to go down that self-righteous wrong path for sure. So how do you keep opening your eyes and keep learning new stuff and keep thinking about stuff? So for me, I mean, I I can think of a lot of examples, but what just popped into my mind is because I'm obsessed about the fact that this country has created the architecture of fascism. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're a fully fascist enacted country yet, but I think the architecture is there as it is in, in Great Britain. How do we understand... What's in that blueprint of that architecture? Well, the architecture includes uh, a demeaning and weakening of an independent press, which is partly the whole bought press, the whole Mm -hmm. bought media, the the capitalist press, which when Les Monvies said during the 2008 election, Donald Trump may be bad for America, but he's great for CBS, that spoke volumes. And and that's as true today as it ever was. So Mm -hmm. it's a symbiotic kind of thing. So a weakening of an independent voice, an independent media, a packing of the courts and a weakening of the courts and a chipping away at an independent judiciary. Um, These are bulwarks against kind of authoritarianism, mm-hmm. the kind of creation of a, of a culture in which the, the dialectic, the tension between we and me gives way, and it's all about me, a kind of weaponized individualism, mm-hmm. so that instead of people saying, look, we have to think about public safety, we say, I have to have my gun because how the hell am I going to protect myself? Right. Instead of thinking of, of education as a public good, we say education is a product to be sold at the marketplace. Mm-hmm. I'll buy mine, you buy yours. Instead of thinking about transportation as a public need, mm-hmm. we start to think my car and Uber. Mm-hmm. Those are the yeah. only choices, right, you know? Right. And, and so it's that weaponization of individualism. That's part of the architecture mm-hmm. of fascism. And then to have an authoritarian, charismatic, clownish mm-hmm. guy at the helm is very much a part of the script. I mean, you yeah. you know, and... And the trappings of democracy without the reality of democracy. Mm -hmm. So Citizens United. This is so clearly the undermining of any kind of... And we have things like the Electoral College and all the other holdovers from slavery. As I say, I think these are troubling, dangerous times. Those are some examples. But then you go to the other side and you say, wow, Barbara Ransby's had two terrific op-eds in the New York Times. There's a, apparently a young black editor of the of the op-ed page. Then you have um, Han and Nicole Jones and the 1619 yeah, Project. project. Yeah. Then you have Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz with the Indigenous People's History of the United States. I mentioned those last two readings because those are the first readings on my syllabus for a class I'm teaching on culture, power, and education. 
And those are the first two pieces. It sounds like a hell read. of a syllabus. Oh my God. I mean, that's, where, that's just where we begin. I feel like your syllabus game is really strong. Well, you know, one of the things I, I'll tell you about syllabuses, because it's, it's one of my art forms, but I love the fact, what I try to do in this particular course, I try to pair books. So by beginning with the 1619 Project from the New York Times, and again, are you kidding me? The New York Times? Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. There's a contradiction. Mm -hmm. right. You know, it's just a contradiction. Did you see the, the lines around the block outside of the New York Times building? When they released, when they released it, it, literally people went the way like they did to see like a concert. People went and camped out and lined up around the block. I love that. I did not so see beautiful. it. I did not see it. I was in rural California and um, I had to make a run to the coast. And so I went and I, I called my brother and I said, get me a copy hmm. of that piece. I mean, I have it online, but I want a physical copy. And he called me back and said, you can't find it anywhere in Chicago. Mm. It's missing. Mm. And everybody's got it. And so I was really pissed. But I had to make a run <laughs> to the coast. I stopped at a at a newsstand. There were 20 of them. I bought all 20. Mm. So um, that's an astonishing reality. And that's in conflict with the New York Times as Warhawk and Monger of War and all the rest right. of it. But so, yeah, um, I think that those things are counterweights. And as I was saying at the very beginning, we have the architecture of fascism, and then we have new forms of resistance. And I think that you look at something like the squad in Congress, yeah. and you see something quite interesting. You see not only people who were put there because of the social movements, and this is really an important point. Maybe I'll back up, because one of the things that we, back. <laughs> we make a huge mistake when we read history as either the great men or the great ideas. I mean, it's just not how things happen. Lyndon Johnson was a cracker from Texas, also the most effective politician of his generation, passed the most far-reaching civil rights legislation since Reconstruction, mm -hmm. but he was still a cracker from Texas, so why did he do it? Right. Well, there was a social movement on the ground that was making an American revolution, and King wasn't calling Johnson saying, could we talk? Johnson was, was calling King, King. Right. and FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, a patrician from the Hudson Valley passed the most far-reaching labor legislation in history. Mm -hmm. And the most important is Abraham Lincoln, who, you know, everyone reads his second inaugural because that's what we have in the history books. That was written by Frederick Douglass. Mm -hmm. Read his first inaugural where he genuflects in front of the slave owners. Mm. That's... The, the, yeah, the, the, the litany of like blatantly racist quotes from Abraham Lincoln oh, that got erased Not history. to mention when he talks about indigenous people. And, oh, and, 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 well. and, and presides over the largest execution of indigenous yeah, yeah. people. Abraham Lincoln. I mean, so, so yeah, exactly. But the point is that we know Abraham Lincoln mm. through a history book that the prism is shaped right. by wanting to understand things today. That's not how it works. So why did Lincoln, FDR, and Johnson do what they did? Because of fire from below. And that's what we have to always remember. Mm -hmm. I, I started with the squad, and the reason I did is because the squad both represents fire from below, and they also point to another aspect of it, which is you have to walk towards serious social change. I would say towards socialism, you have to walk toward it on two legs. One is the social movements and the other is real politics. Mm. And I think that too often people on the left in particular forget that it's the social movements where the energy is. In mm -hmm. other words, we spend too much time <laughs> yeah. staring at the sites of power we mm -hmm. have no access to, mm -hmm. the White House, the Pentagon, the medieval auction block called the Congress, and too little time, <laughs> too little time staring at the sites of power we have absolute access to, the neighborhood, the club, the house of worship, the school, the classroom, 
that's also power right. if you mobilize it. And mm -hmm. so we shouldn't spend all of our time wringing our hands that we don't have access or worrying about how are we going to get access to the president when what we should be doing is building from below mm -hmm. the kind of social movement that's irresistible. We just witnessed in Chicago an example of this too. I mean, we would not have had two black women candidates for mayor mm -hmm. had it not been for the social movements in right. Chicago. And Chicago is an absolute incubator for the most exciting social movements ever, right? So we, are, we are in a beautiful, beautiful spot. But we wouldn't have had Lori Lightfoot versus Tony Preckwinkle. Mm -hmm. And that was a result of the social movements. Both of them espousing a, a, a progressive platform. But then the question is, and, and too many people spent too much time worrying about which one was flawed in which ways. They're both flawed. They're right. both deeply flawed. So the question was, how are you going to build the social movement where it's irresistible to tear down the police academy, right. where it's irresistible to build decent schools, where it's irresistible to stop Lincoln Yards? That's the job. The job is not to get out the vote and then go home. Right. That's not democracy. Yeah. So that's what I think is a good example of that dialectic. Social movements, real politics, mm -hmm. but don't let go of the social movements because that's all we have. Yeah. I want to, uh, I'm going to get meta for a sec. The way that that, uh, what you just said moved in your dialogue and in the way that you just explained things was incredibly riveting and interesting to me as a like forget about on the radio and just as like a listener and it made me think about the way you teach it's a funny way of asking this but in your head how do you think about your ideas like the what you were just saying was that linear was that going back to things was that stream of consciousness like how do you envision the ideas that you want to get out and then how do you think about putting them together because I've never heard anyone answer a question the way you just did, is what I'm saying. I, you know, I have written a lot. I mm -hmm. wrote my first book when I was 45 years old. Mm. And then I wrote a book a year for the next 20 years. Wow. So, so, and you know, <laughs> I just want to, I just want, like, you don't have to explain that any further. I just want that to pause because yeah. we center young thought or youthfulness so much. Yeah. And the idea that, like, if I haven't done my thing by 27, I'm not, like, functioning. Yeah, I got my doctorate after doing a lot of other things. When I was 43, mm. <clears throat> my younger brother, who was um, a fascinating person in his own right, he got his doctorate when he was 62. Mm. And he was uh, in the army during the Vietnam War. Mm. And um, when he got orders for Vietnam, he deserted. Mm. And he was with me underground for 11 years. Mm. And then he did time in the brig and became a teacher at Berkeley High School and became a legendary teacher. Um, he's now writing books at a furious rate himself. But we you could say we were late bloomers or you could say we had other things to do. <laughs> um, the point is, and you take somebody like Eve Ewing, who you've, you've had on your program, and you can look at Eve Ewing. You know, I think young African-American women look at her and say, man, how does she do all that? Yeah. And she'd be the first to tell you, I didn't do it all at once in one day. I work on things serially and I work on them, you know, as they come. But I was, I wrote my first book, on teaching, and it was called The Good Preschool Teacher because I was a preschool teacher. And I did portraits of six teachers teaching. <laughs> and what's been kind of germinal in my teaching is a couple of ideas. One is that your job as a teacher is not to stand at the front and lecture uh, and tell people what to think. Your job is to unlock the wisdom in the room. And if you've ever worked with little kids, I don't know if either of you has yeah, little kids, but if you just go to a playground, I often tell my, my students of teaching, go to a playground and watch a two-year-old. Um, that two-year-old is in the sandbox, piling things up, walking away, getting a, 
a bucket full of sand, piling it onto the pile, then going and getting some water and creating a river, then measuring things and doing this and that. Another, another toddler comes along. They begin to work side by side. They chatter at each other, whether they're talking to each other or not. And the interesting thing to watch is that child is learning mightily, crazily, right. all the time. And yet that child is not anyone's target of instruction. Mm -hmm. the, the wisdom is coming right from within, wanting to be competent, wanting to live in the world. I think of my oldest son, who was born 42 years ago and born at home in a fifth floor walk-up in San Francisco. No doctors present. Mm. And uh, my partner felt that uh, pregnancy wasn't a medical condition and uh, mm. she didn't need to be medicalized. So we had this baby and it was a 36-hour labor. Mm -hmm. And you watch this kid emerge and yeah, it was just exhausting and incredible and tears were everywhere. The kid is two minutes old. The midwife swaddles him, puts him on his mother's breast. And the question I often ask my students is, who's teaching whom how to nurse? Mm -hmm. Okay, mom had talked right. to her sister, talked to the midwife, consulted friends, joined La Leche League. But somehow, in the first five minutes, the kid knows things she doesn't know. Right. <laughs> the baby knows, hold me this way, not that way. Too right. much, not enough. More of this, more of that. Right. That's five minutes. She's and adapting a, to the babies. And the dialogue has begun. It's right. a dialogue. Yeah. The teacher is the student. The student is the teacher. And so that's guided my teaching from the beginning. And the idea for this began long before I had... Let the record to the way you said this, you pointed to you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the dialogue, but the interesting thing is that I think you can witness this everywhere, that the teacher-student, student-teacher is a dialectic you have to hope for. And your goal as a teacher is to unlock the wisdom in the room. Where I learned this was I started teaching in 1965 as part of the Black Freedom Movement. And th that was just when um, freedom schools were starting. Yeah. The freedom schools had a very simple premise, which is the people with the problems are the people with the solutions. And so freedom schools were organized all over the place. Mm -hmm. And they were organized around the idea, as Charlie Cobb articulated it so brilliantly, organized around the idea that the black people of Mississippi had been denied many things, decent facilities, fully trained teachers, forward-looking curriculum. But the fundamental injury is they've been denied the right to think for themselves about the circumstances of their lives mm -hmm. and how they could be otherwise. Now, that's as revolutionary in 1963 as it is today Absolutely. in 2019. You're allowed to do anything except think for yourselves about the circumstances of your lives and how they could be otherwise. Go to the west side of Chicago. Go to the South Bronx. Go to South, South Central L.A. Nobody is saying to those kids... You know, what are the circumstances of your lives and how they, could they be otherwise? They may teach the civil rights movement, right. but they're not teaching the, the fundamental process, the message yeah. of the civil rights movement, which is you are a human being. And so rather than all the kind of anxiety and energy that goes into creating school reform that's going to look at the problems within the kid, the right. black kids have problems. We have to get those problems fixed. Yeah. No. The way to approach teaching, and, and this is true in big urban systems as well as my little college classrooms, the way you approach teaching is you assume everybody comes to class as an unruly spark of meaning-making energy, mm -hmm. and your job is to work with those sparks. Your job isn't to make targets of instruction. You know, what kills me, and you guys aren't probably as 
familiar with some of the school reform insanity that goes on. But, you know, it's not just charter schools and, and vouchers and all the big policy things. It's kind of um, popular ideas that go around. So right. one of the popular ideas today is that what black kids are missing is grit. See, if we could teach them to be gritty. And more resilient. And more resilient. And more, yeah. not just resilient, but stick to All right, yeah. right. You know, because right. white kids have grit. And the woman who invented this theory is a professor at Penn, privileged young white woman, who dropped out of college and went traveling in Europe. Uh-huh. Um, and that's where she got on, on her grit? On her dad's nickel. Of course, of course. On her dad's nickel. <laughs> and yeah, and then she, she develops a theory of grit, and we're going to teach grittiness. As my friend Glory Ladson Billings said, Black people have had nothing but grit. <laughs> what, we're, what we're lacking is money and opportunity. Yeah, it's our know. favorite breakfast food. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. We funny. wouldn't be alive if we didn't have grit. So, so you know, I think that that's grits, yeah. grits. Abund- grits in abundance. <laughs> but notice, notice what I what I'm pointing to in terms of an educational philosophy mm-hmm. is that the problem is not to look at the individual and say. What's wrong inside you, in your culture, in your background, in your knowledge? And I'm going to fix that. The trick is to say, what is it you're bringing in terms of energy, in terms of meaning-making capacity? And one of the things that I think intimidates some of my students, but I think exhilarates others, is that if you're in a classroom of 30 second graders, you not only have those 30 kids, you have the mom and dad aunts and uncles, grandparents, elders, you have a whole community sitting right on their shoulders. And you're there in the class and you can feel like, oh crap, how can I deal with this? (laughs) Or you can say, man, I am blessed. Hmm. Look at all this wisdom in the room. I got a language group, I got a culture, I got this, I got that. Let's work with that. And that to me is the key to unlocking good teaching. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. So, I mean, it's so powerful to have you here. And I want to creep towards uncovering some of the history because I think what is exciting and also like the responsibility of this conversation is we're about 203, 205, whatever in uh, and probably 70% of those people have been 35 and under. Mm. Um, And so uh, it's a lot of like, where are you right now and projecting towards the future. And so really value as we've gotten better at this work of, of figuring out how to be in conversation intergenerationally and like document, you know, firsthand primary history. Uh, but before we do that, mm-hmm. I just want to, right now, where you are, I'm very curious as to what excites you. You talk about the fire from below. Like, what is your fire within in terms of your work brain and your work spirit? What are the things that either anger you or or give you hope right now? Of like, this is this is a point of focus for me. This is the the, the ball that I want to push yeah, right now. Yeah, what's the flame burning right now for you? First, I'll say something about hope and, and what gives me energy. Again, I, I made the assertion that Chicago is one of the, you know, uh, one of the real energy points of movement building. That's true of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's true of Black Youth Project. It's also, you guys may be too young to remember, but the immigrant rights movement started here. We had a million people marching on downtown Chicago. Mm -hmm. I think it was 2005. And, And it was an extraordinary moment. It was the first moment in my lifetime that people would be interviewed on the radio or on the TV or on the New York Times, and they would say, yeah, my name is uh, Hector Morales, and I've been here illegally for 15 years, and I own a business in uh, South Side. <laughs> you know, holy cow, you just yeah. said your name. You know, yeah. that was something. And, and that came out of 
Chicago, and that came out of the University of Illinois at Chicago. These mm-hmm. kids, these kids who were here illegally, mm-hmm. they'd always been taught their whole life: be good, be a good student, be a goody two shoes. Don't get in any trouble. And we have these secrets. They got to the University of Illinois at Chicago, and they met each other, and they began saying, "You know what? I, I'm not going to keep a secret. I'm not a crime, just mm-hmm. like Trevor Noah. I'm not born yeah, a crime. Yeah, yeah. You know, so so they began to say to each other, "Let's do something," and they began to um, speak up and speak out. They had T-shirts that said, uh, "Undocumented and unafraid." Yeah. That gives me energy. Mm-hmm. I went to the rally where we shut down Donald Trump mm-hmm. at the University of Illinois Chicago. How did that happen? I retired from UIC ten years ago, and I'd gotten emails from a couple of students, and they said, "Bill, get get a ticket." to the um, Trump event at the, at the big Coliseum there at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And um, we're going to get tickets and we're going to go inside. So I went online. I got two tickets. In fact, to this day, I still get emails from the Trump organization because I had a ticket <laughs> to go to one I of did his rallies. I didn't go, but I did sign it like, so that there would be fewer tickets available. And for like two years, kind of neurotically, I stayed on the email list just because yeah. I wanted to see I'm still on crazy it. Oh, shit. Oh, I'm still on it. It ended up being too compulsive of like, I was kind of yelling back into yeah. the abyss. Yeah. And I was like, I got to, I got to unsubscribe yeah. here. <laughs> Get yourself cleansed. I know, exactly. But I didn't, I didn't. I, I, my <laughs> latest, you remain yeah, filthy. <laughs> yeah, my latest email offers me a signed copy of a Sharpie from Donald Trump. So, <laughs> a uh, signed copy of a Sharpie? Yeah, exactly. You can get a package of Sharpies signed by the president in response to the uh, Hurricane Dorian madness. Um, so in, in any case, um, so I went online, oh, I got tickets, and then I went down to the demonstration. And if you wanted to have a moment of um, really crying out loud, they're on the podium. All these student groups have been meeting for three weeks to stop mm-hmm. Trump. Mm-hmm. And there'd be a Muslim student give a speech about the hatred towards Muslims and hand the mic over to a queer student. And that queer student would hand the mic over to a black student union person and so on and so on. It was so moving to see 10 kids from 10 different student groups talking to one another and finding common cause. We had a huge rally at the university. Then we marched over. And, you know, the important thing about a fascist rally is that it requires dissidents, but only a couple. You want to have the black guy you can single out and punch out. You want to have the one woman who's standing up and you want to, you know, Your symbolic other. Yeah, you got to have that because the fascist rally needs that. And he used journalists a lot for that. A lot. They became the turn on the pit. Yes, exactly. exactly. Look at the pit. But you have to have an adoring crowd and a dissident. Hmm. What we did at UIC was we had more than half the audience was us. Mm-hmm. So I went over to get in line. I cr- I was in the demonstration. Then I just crossed the police line. I was in line for, for going in. And, of course, I had a lot of – I was wearing my Black Lives Matter T-shirt. I had a lot of interesting conversations with people in line. <laughs> Mostly they were young people who were there for the spectacle. Right. That's also part of fascism right. is, mm-hmm. is that they weren't there because they were ideologically no, they put committed. put on a good show. Exactly. They were from Lombard or they were from, you know – Carol Stream or something, and they just wanted to see the show. And we'd get into, and some of them recognized me, and we'd get into these conversations. And so it was insane, but it was also interesting. I get into the into the auditorium, and it's announced that he's not coming. Now he says that the police said it's dangerous, don't come, but that's not true. 
the students at the University of Illinois at Chicago and their friends and comrades shut it down. Mm -hmm. That's hugely important because... Yeah. And the movement at large. The movement at large in Chicago shut it down, mm -hmm. so he was not welcomed in Chicago. And that was an example, as Hong Kong is, as Puerto Rico is, as other examples through history are, of people mobilizing yeah. to have a say when they're not being invited into the room. Yeah. So that gives me hope. It's, yeah. In that moment particularly, because I was, I was the co-chair of the BYP chapter at that time. In, uh, in the city? Yeah. Or, yeah. or at UIC? No, in, the city. No, in the city. Oh, yeah, cool, yeah. Cool. And so... Um, with Charlene? With who? Yeah. Uh, well, she's the, she was the national director mm, at the mm, time. Mm -hmm. and, and me and John A. Strong were, were the co-chairs of the Chicago chapter cool. during 2016. So that moment was really distinct because we were also going to our national convening that night. I remember. Some of our members ended up getting hospitalized. So I was just actually like reviewing, like kind of having a healing conversation with somebody about that three years later. Um, and what, what was phenomenal about that moment to me is it became so much more significant by the fact that he won and was elected. At that time, we have to remember, he still seemed like not a reality exactly. for mainstream. Exactly. You know, seemed like a reality people. show. Right. It felt like, yeah, exactly. It and, felt like and it is. But yeah, and so right. it, was, it, was, it was the bigot that we were, just, we were just showing up for. But now that he is the president, to have shut down a, 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 an eventual presidential campaign, like, I, I don't know, has it happened anywhere else ever? You know, I mean, I, I, You're I, the think person I was about to, I was say, I don't know, but you would know. If well, I mean, you know, the last years. time I was at a rally like that was George Wallace in Cleveland. I was a community organizer in Cleveland at a joint project of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and Students for Democratic Society. And we organized against Wallace, but we went into their black and white together, went into that rally and we got the shit kicked out of us. Mm -hmm. So this was a very different feeling. And, and it continued? The rally <clears throat> continued on? Yeah, and, and the rally went on. I think what, it, what we proved is that a fascist rally doesn't go on without an adoring audience. Mm -hmm. Deny him the adoring audience and you've done something. Mm -hmm. And that's all he wants anyway. That's what it's like what that's keeps, his motivation. Well, it's the energy that keeps it going. That's part of his motivation, and there may be other things, but hmm. whether he's a useful idiot or a cunning bastard is not clear. <laughs> <Right>. But but, <laughs> but but there's something else to note in, in terms of what you said. There's a book that I read recently, two books really. I hate to be professorial, but Please sometimes do. I have to be. We have a uh, we have a re we have a reading list on our website where books that are mentioned on the show we put them up there. So that's interesting. I want to return at some point, make a mark. I want to return to the syllabus and reading. Oh, yeah. This but, is a uh, professorial safe space. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Trigger warning. I'm going to be professorial. Um, uh, but but uh, this one book is called "The Queer Art of Failure" mm. uh, by Jack Halberstam. Uh, and it, it's a brilliant, brilliant book. He bases a lot of his work on Disney cartoons. Uh, mm. and, and so a lot of it is kind of interestingly woven into the popular culture. Um, Pixar cartoons, actually. The thesis is simple, which is when things are going along normal, like your relationship, your career, your politics, everybody's normal in their place. And you don't have to go too deep in questioning it. So when you ask what's exciting about this time, it's a kind of a complicated thing or a contradictory thing, but what's exciting is we have to go deeper to understand how the hell we got here. Right. We can't simply say it's business as usual. So one example of that is that Bernadine and I had gotten tickets to go to D.C. to participate in a peace ball the night before Hillary Clinton was to be inaugurated. We got our tickets in the middle of the summer. <laughs> so this is normal. This is what would be normal. Right. We would go to Washington 
the way we are mm-hmm. always. Mm-hmm. We would have our peace signs. We would have our petitions. We would write our statements and Hillary would be president and she would be making war and things would be normal. <laughs> and then it wasn't normal mm. because the queer art of failure was that we failed to have things be normal. And mm. what did that lead to? The Women's March. The most extraordinary mm. march I've ever participated wow. in. I've never seen anything like it in mm. my whole life. What do you mean by what, just what was truly the, unique of it beyond What just was the unique numbers? about it is it didn't have an organizing center. It was mm. a spontaneous yeah. human reaction led by women mm-hmm. and led by people of color to the unacceptable. And it was spontaneous and it was multifaceted. There were militants. There was humor. There was earnestness. All of it was happening at once, and it was the great cauldron of a million people mm-hmm. descending in common cause. Mm-hmm. You know, I love big gatherings like that. My The last one before that was uh, Obama's um, victory night in Chicago <laughs> when a million people gathered. Were you there? Oh, yes. I was the last <laughs> Don't person. Don't tell anyone, yeah. I was, oh, I was, no, at that point, nobody gave a shit. That yeah, was fine. That, uh, I could yeah, be yeah, there. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> in fact, people who, had, people who had shunned me for months were yeah. shaking my hand. Um, it's like, huh, you haven't returned my phone call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, people, it was a weird period. But um, no, what was exciting about that night was that I would see things like a Latinx cop uh, dancing with an uh, with an older African American man. I would see uh, people with children on their shoulders, an old woman in a wheelchair waving a flag. I mean, Again, and it was all joy. Normal, right? Yeah, we it wasn't. We weren't angry, and we weren't celebrating gluttony. We were just <laughs> relieved. And you know, I was actually the last person to leave Grant Park. They had to sweep me out. You, you stayed. To the oh, way. I mean, I could. I <laughs> what time I, would that have been? Like five in the morning, by then? two, two, three in the morning, uh-huh. and. Uh, uh, the cop came up and said, Bill, it's time to leave. <laughs> anyway. Like, Hell no. We will go. <laughs> <laughs> the we is I. That's no. the queer, that is the queer art of failure, mm-hmm. um, the Hillary Clinton uh, defeat. And I think that's that you learn things from that that you don't learn if things are normal. We would have normally protested her as a war president. She would have normally gone to war. Now we had the beginnings of a fascist, an incipient fascist um, moment. And so it was a failure. The second book I wanted to mention is a book called Beyond Education Mm. um, by a guy I'm on a panel. I only read the book because he sent it to me last week. He and I are on a panel together in New York at a workers' writers' school. Hmm. But his name is Eli Meyerhoff. And the book is a I'll just give you very briefly, it takes off from three incidents. The most interesting is an incident at Yale University where my youngest son went to school and and to law school. I'll tell you about him another time in a minute. (laughs) But at Yale a few years ago, you may have read about this. A young man, African-American, working in the kitchen at Calhoun College, he had grown up in New Haven, went, went to a traditionally a historically black uh, college, returned to New Haven, couldn't get a good job, so joined a union, got a good job working at Yale. Decent job. So he's a college-educated 36-year-old black man. Mm-hmm. And on his lunch break, he, uh, he gets fed up with seeing this little stained-glass window of two African slaves picking cotton, smiling, mm-hmm. and it pisses him off. So he takes his broom and breaks it. And pandemonium ensues. Mm. And what's fascinating about the way Eli tells the story is that this guy spoke about it quite a bit in the first couple weeks. Then his union fought to get his job back. He got his job back, but he had to sign the notorious Mm non-disclosure agreement. Why? Well, because Yale didn't want him talking. They released a press release 
explaining what they thought happened. It, we at Yale resolve contradictions, you know, nonviolently. This was a violent act. Really, breaking a window was a violent act. And um, we are sorry that this happened. People were endangered. All of that's lies. Yeah. But, but the real question that Eli raises is, why was this black man dangerous to Yale University with its 4,000 professors and its billion dollars, you know, what's in so the scary bank? about this boy? Well, yeah, what's, so, what's so dangerous about him? And it turns out what's dangerous about him is he's telling the truth that they're not getting in the classroom. That led to all that upheaval about Calhoun College. Why do we have a college at Yale named after John Calhoun? Right. Why? And, and it was all part of that movement against monuments and yeah. namings and so on. But that's an interesting example. So his book is called Beyond Education because he's saying education as a formal classroom affair isn't where most of us learn most of our stuff. Right. We learn it in the streets. We learn it in opposition. We learn it in resistance. We learn it in the, in the clubs. We learn it elsewhere, and I think that's a really important lesson. Mm. All right, so yeah. there's so many threads. You mentioned 08, and before we pretend to get into that, um, <laughs> do you have fatigue from 08, or do you, are, are you growing in perspective moving further and further away from that? I don't think I have fatigue. What, what, what would that, what, how would that manifest? Just, you know, your name getting oh, into a global oh, space and people who oh, may that. not know you for anything besides that well, and then having to then— the, the memoir that I did, I brought you guys a copy of Fugitive mm -hmm. Days. I didn't bring you Public Enemy. Yeah, yeah. Public I saw Enemy, one of your talks about it. Public Enemy begins um, in my living room. I often have my doctoral students over. And in the spring of 08, I had a, some of my doctoral students over to talk about their dissertations. We had a potluck dinner. And as it was winding down, somebody turned on the television. And it was when George Stephanopoulos asked Obama right at that moment, uh, what about your relationship with Jeremiah Wright? He said, blah, blah, blah. And Obama said what he said, you know, something like, you know, it was a different era and he was angry and I don't think like that. And they said, well, what about this guy, Bill Ayers? You know, he bombed the Pentagon and never apologized. And um, Obama, as you might remember, said, uh, look, George, for, he committed despicable acts, but to blame me for something that happened when I was eight years old is a little absurd. And he, he said something like, I was an English professor at the University of Chicago, something mm -hmm. like that. What was interesting about that moment is that my students, as Stephanopoulos brought my name into the living room and into the international world, um, <laughs> uh, my students fell on the floor. And they were just astonished to hear my name uttered on the national mm -hmm. debate yeah. stage, the international debate stage. And uh, one of them turned to me and said, wow, that guy has the same name as you. <laughs> and, and, some, and somebody, one other student correct, and said to him, well, that's because they are the same guy. Oh, that's so and, funny. And yeah, it was weird. What um, a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, what a coincidence. They, they, you have the same name. So yeah, what happened is that I got thrust into that presidential moment uh, as Obama's terrorist friend. And what there are a lot of things that were interesting about it. One is that, you know, they couldn't figure out. This was incidentally Hillary Clinton, not yeah. McCain-Palin. Right. Right. This right. was Hillary Clinton who brought that up. And then McCain-Palin picked it up and tried to weaponize it, and it blew up in their faces. Mm -hmm. But the thing that they couldn't figure out how to do is to run against this charismatic guy from the South Side. And so they said, but we don't know anything about him, but look at his friends, a black nationalist preacher, a terrorist, you know, a, a, a weird Catholic priest, you know, and so right. on, and a, and a Palestinian scholar. In fact, Rashid Khalidi was pulled into that same thing. And mm -hmm. Rashid was, had moved to New York by that time. We were very, very close friends. And Rashid called me up and said, did you see CNN? And I hadn't. So he sent me the clip. And the clip was um, 
a reporter asking a, a McCain official who had said that Obama had anti-Semitic friends. <laughs> and um, the, the reporter said, you say he has anti-Semitic friends, who? And he says, um, Rashid Khalidi. And he says, well, you said friends, who else? And he said, well, Bill Ayers. And he says, Ayers isn't an anti-Semite, he's a terrorist. And um, <laughs> <laughs> Just so that we're yes. everything clear, but... stay, stay in your lane. Yeah. And so, uh, <laughs> so Rashid sent it to me. And then he called me up and he said, look, let's trade places. You be the anti-Semite, yeah. I'll be the terrorist. <laughs> they got but, their signals. <laughs> yeah, you just think so confusing. But, but the reality is it, it didn't go anywhere and it was insane and yeah. it was kind of crazy on the face of it. But it was a a trying time, a difficult time, only because I was under such um, incredible pressure. And yeah. and the good thing is I have three brilliant sons who mm -hmm. counseled me every day, a wonderful mm -hmm. brother, a great partner. And when I'd be tempted, uh, you know, my, my son Malik said to me, look, Pops, this is going to be really hard for you. You have to be quiet. <laughs> and I said, I know that's going to be hard. He said, just listen to me. Shut the f up. <laughs> Shut up. And uh, so that was Malik. And every now and then I, I got a request, for example, from um, Bill O'Reilly. He said, look, I know you're not talking to the media, but could you just give me your definition of terrorism? Mm. So I sent that to my son, Zaid, and I said, look, Zaid, I can answer this so well. And Zaid said, look, Pops, you're watching the roller coaster. Do not get on the roller coaster. Right. And so I had this counsel to keep me mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. And it was many, many interesting and funny and crazy things happened. The death threats weren't fun. No. Uh, but I had, a, I had a cop at the University of Illinois who was in charge of watching me when I was on campus. They'd gotten two threats. One was had my home address on. Watching you or protecting you? They were protecting me. Okay. You know, one, one threat. Uh, had my home address on it. And when I left the campus, they would follow me home. Mm. Um, but one threat had my home address on it. It was from Texas. And a guy said, we're going to come and kidnap you and waterboard you. And then I had another one from Louisiana, say, same day, saying, um, we've got a sharpshooter and you're going to be dead by next week. Mm. And so this officer, Muhammad, that was his name. Mm. Um, he was... <laughs> the son of Black Panthers. Um, anyway, <laughs> Officer Muhammad was taking care of me. and uh, Just to make things complex. <laughs> yeah, you got to be complicated. It's a weird world. We live in a wildly diverse and yeah. crazy uh, country. But in any case, Muhammad brought these to me and he said, look, Bill, I'm just hoping that the guy who's going to shoot you gets here before the guy who's going to waterboard you. <laughs> because wouldn't it be horrible to be waterboarded and then shot? <laughs> Better to be shot. Anyway, we had that kind of relationship. And just for that guy's yeah. sake, he drove all the way from Texas. Yeah, exactly. Got there, like, exactly. Oh, got a, I got like this pail in the back. I got a man, the whole thing. Yeah. But I had a Chicago cop, Tony Preckwinkle, called me one night and said that she wanted a cop parked in front of my house and she knew I would object but she was going to insist on it so I said okay and one morning I came out and there was a cop there and I know the cops in Hyde Park I mean it's a small community and we know each other but there's a cop sitting in front of my house and he held up Fugitive Days he was reading it all night <laughs> <laughs> so there are these moments that are like that is as a, about as absurd as a thing can get Absolutely. for any person yeah. absolutely <laughs> So how do you make sense of that? Like, you've been in so many situations to the point about, like, quote, normality and abnormality that live outside the realm of what, on paper, if someone were describing what their future would hold. There's so many, it sounds like, of those moments that you could never anticipate or guess. So this is kind of the macro-spiritual question. Uh, I feel like we're an hour in, so I can ask it. 
how do you make sense of that in terms of like the absurdity of life in general <laughs> in connection to a, whether it's a spiritual practice or just what is it for you? How, how do you make sense of things that don't make any sense? <clears throat> life is, you know, is absurd. And I think <laughs> that it's a combination of choices and chances and nobody chooses when to be thrust into the world. Nobody chooses their parents. I have to remind my students of this all the time <laughs> when they're, uh, you know, trying to <clears throat> grapple with how wonderful they are that you didn't choose your parents, you know, you were thrust into the world and it's a world not of your choosing. You right. didn't choose to be in this world, but now you have a responsibility to choose who to be in light of what you understand that world to be. And that's the best we can do. Yeah. But I think, um, Chaos, chance, coincidence, these things are just the stuff of life. And, and you can spend your time trying to make a rational story out of those things, or you can just see it for what it is, which is madness and, <laughs> um, and sparkles and uh, explosions. <laughs> and, you know, and you know, I feel like the best we can do is try to understand the world we were thrust into and do something. Um, that's why I go back again and again to this notion that you have to open your eyes, pay attention, act, doubt, um, yeah. be, astonished. be astonished because you can't. And, and the astonishment is exactly that, coming to grips with how who could have predicted this? This book, Fugitive Days, was published. The pub date is 9-11-2001. Bernadine and I were on the front page of the art section of the New York Times on 9-11-2001 with a headline. No regret for a lifetime love of explosives. Mm. Not my headline. Mm. The New York Times' headline. Mm. And people on the train to work mm. saw that headline, and they saw our pictures. And two hours later, three hours later, they saw what happened on that day. That was before 2008. Yeah, that was, it was wild. And Did you hear about the uh, George Carlin special that got pulled? I did. And, and did you hear about this? No. What was on, the, What was in the special? He, he he shot it twice. He shot it on September 9th and September 10th. And I think the title of it was "Sometimes I Think It's Funny When a Lot of People Die at Once." And then he had to like, like this. He like they threw away the footage. And yeah, like, and everyone's like, like comedians at, now have to apologize. <laughs> I was on book tour. I had a 35 city book tour. Hmm. I had done the first two nights. Mm -hmm. I woke up on the 11th in Ann Arbor. I got the New York Times and saw the story. And two hours later, all hell broke loose. But the night before, I was at Michigan State University giving a lecture partly based on the book. And um, one of the things I said then is, it's in America's interest to pretend that we're the victims, that we're under assault, when actually we're doing the assaulting. Mm -hmm. And then the next day. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, so, so it, it, you know, talk about crazy things. Right. Talk about things you couldn't anticipate. Coincidences. And in a weird way, not only 9-11, but 2008, I was as prepared as anybody could be um, <laughs> to, to deal to with the, that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. And I imagine that the answer to this next question is in Fugitive Days. But to the metaphor your son used, I think you said your son Malik, uh, don't get on that roller coaster. That was Zaid. Zaid. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're watching it. Don't it was get Malik who told him to shut the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> let's, that's from, that was, let's correctly that's more Malik. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so using that metaphor of like not getting on but watching, I, w I would like to put you in like the position of being able to conduct that roller coaster. So I'm I'm 15 when the, oh, you know, the, that primary was coming about mm. uh, i did not have any built-in like access to radical consciousness at that time just watching the debate was like 
me being even more political than was expected. And so I remember that coming up. I remember the terrorism thing. I remember, you know, my sister, Christiana, Cologne, yeah, she, had, sure. she had performed in your house before. And so That's right. since she was like 14, 15, she was always like getting associated with ter- terrorism right. uh, for her poems <laughs> <laughs> and where she would say her poems. And so it, there was something cool about it. Uh, but there, there's a flattening, I think, of, of because you became a talking piece instead of a f- true human. Uh, the history was always flattened in real way. So even... Two days ago, coincidentally, I'm just watching, uh, I mentioned I sometimes watch Joe Rogan. He's talking to Bill Burr. We're both comedy buffs. So I'm just watching Bill Burr talk about his new special. And then they want to start talking about Dustin Hoffman. And then they're talking about Obama, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, this is the guy that Obama and the terror, right? It's 10 years later. Right. And you still just get, I forgot his name, but there's this terrorist guy. Um, and so I, I don't have an explicit or deep knowledge of the Weathermen, the Weather Underground, SDS. I'm, I'm familiar uh, but how did mainstream conversation flatten that history? And if you were able to conduct that roller coaster when your name got brought to that, those platforms, how would you have expanded what people needed to know about that history? Well, you know, in a, in a funny way, I mean, I, I think of myself more of a, as a teacher than a writer. But and as you know, my approach to teaching is much more interactive and dialogic mm-hmm. than it is. Um, uh, preaching, but I've written a lot about those days. I've written three memoirs: um, one called "Fugitive Days" about the years of the American War against Vietnam, one called "Public Enemy," which I never expected to write. My publisher wanted me to, but I didn't want to because I felt like I'd said what I wanted to say. But then I got caught up in the 2008 thing, mm-hmm. and I thought, "Let me write something real about what happened from the end of Fugitive Days to the Obama election." Mm-hmm. And what was interesting in writing that was that, um, you know, I I found that when I looked back at the book, at Public Enemy, it's much more about teaching and parenting than anything else. Mm. But that's what I did in those years. Right. I so taught that's what you and I raised yeah. three kids, you know. <laughs> right. And so, you know, that's what it is. And, and I think the lesson for me is that uh, – I'll, I'll tell you a bit about the weatherman. I'll bra- back up and say that. But the lesson of, of trying to write something like this even – is if you follow any human being two minutes into their lived life, it gets so complicated that you can hardly <laughs> believe it. You know, and that's true. Yeah. You know, and you realize this when you fall in love. I mean, you realize, you know, you fall in love with this person and it's so much more complicated than you thought and you feel so much more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the reasons that a very typical reaction to realizing that you're in love is crying hmm. is because you feel so vulnerable and you yeah. feel so exposed to something so complicated you don't even know what to do with it. Right. So I think that's one of the beautiful things about about living life is that if you keep going and keep putting one foot in front of the other, you'll find that there's a lot of complexity out there. All your stereotypes, whether it's just a a flash in the pan stereotype. Somebody speeds past you and cuts you off. You give them the finger. What a jerk. Well, it's more complicated Mm -hmm. than you thought. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, she's on her way to see her son who's in the ER because he got in a bike accident. You didn't know that. And and it's too hard to know all that. So you kind of live with your stereotypes, but it's wrong. And and I think that that's an important kind of thing. So if I were, I, I never think of myself as conducting the roller coaster or the orchestra, but the reality is that I was very, very lucky to come of age when the black freedom movement was setting the moral agenda for our country. And, and I think that when I said earlier that this is an exciting moment, 
the Black Freedom Movement is centuries old, and we're witnessing the latest iteration of that upsurge. Mm -hmm. And you can be grateful that you were a part of it, and you can be thankful, and you can also remind people, we all know that you you would have saved Anne Frank. We all know that you would have marched with Martin Luther King. We all know that you were on the side of the angels back then. But what about now? And actually, it's happening now. It's not happening back then. You get no moral credit for being on King's side at the Selma Bridge. That doesn't, that doesn't cut it. What cuts it is wow. how do you open your eyes to the world as it is today and take a stand knowing that you're going to have to doubt, you're going to be imperfect, you're going to be a lousy messenger, you're not going to be godlike, you're going to be as fragile and human and flawed and stupid as you are, (laughs) but that's okay. You still have to act in light of what the known demands of you, (laughs) and that's the only way you can make your identity. You don't make your identity by somebody else applying it to you. You don't make your identity by sitting on the couch smoking a dope and having uh, good ideas. I'm all for that. But, but <laughs> I that's was about not, to say, ah, shit. <laughs> no, no, don't vape. Don't vape, by yeah. the way. But um, no, I, I mean... A PSA from Billy. <laughs> I'm all for you having a joint and, and, and having good ideas. But it doesn't make you a moral person. Right. Now, mm. What makes you a moral person is, and this is really a hard, hard act, because what makes you a moral person is acting in the world against the unfreedom that you find around you. That's the only thing that makes you free. Freedom is not a gift and it's not a thing and it's not something that we have because we're Americans. Freedom is when you identify an obstacle to your your humanity or your neighbor's humanity and you act against it collectively. That's what makes Mm. you free. That's why what's weird, and I'm going to go back to the weather underground, but what's weird is that when I was on the run, when I was being hunted, when my wife's picture was in every post office as one of the most dangerous people in America, incidentally, the only time J. Edgar Hoover and I ever agreed was he called Bernadine Dorn the most dangerous woman in America. Um, we agreed. He, like, he likes, J. Edgar Hoover is not afraid of superlative. No, he, and, and neither am I. Um, You'll but, call something the most, but, really quickly. But, you know, the, biggest the, the, the irony is that when we were on the run, when we were being hunted, in fact, I can think of three or four moments when we were, by the skin of our teeth, escaped the police. I never felt freer. Mm-hmm. And, it, and I don't know if you've seen Stanley Nelson's film on the Black Panther Party, Vanguard of the Revolution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brilliant film. But I talked to Stanley Nelson a week after I saw it, and there was this one moment that absolutely riveted me. Mm-hmm. And the moment was these guys who had survived the L.A. shootout, and I knew several of the Panthers mm-hmm. at that time, two guys who had survived the L.A. shootout were on camera, and one of them said it was a standoff. They couldn't get in, and we couldn't get out. Boom, 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 boom. They couldn't get in and we couldn't get out. And he said, in those two hours, I felt like a free Negro. Mm -hmm. And Stanley Nelson said to me, that was the most complicated movie to make. And every time I got lost, I'd put that up on the screen. And I just listened to him say that because there's truth in that. Mm -hmm. I felt free. I was about to die. I was against the state. I was fighting for my life. I felt free. That's the irony that you hear resistant fighters in France talk about during World War II. Mm -hmm. I never felt freer than when we were in a basement and the Nazis were marching by and we were there fighting back. That's what freedom really is. So the Weather Underground, short version. I joined (laughs) as part of the civil rights movement. I joined the anti-war movement. I got arrested in 1965 and over the next 10 years um, got arrested many, many times opposing the war. 
here was the situation in 1968. I was a an organizer for Students for a Democratic Society, traveling in Ohio and Michigan, Kent State, Michigan State, in all places yep. in between, and building the, the movement, going on national demonstrations, going door to door. A lot of that is documented in, in Fugitive Days. And 1968, in uh, the end of March, Lyndon Johnson goes on national TV and says, I'm going to end the war. And we were ecstatic. Mm. We were ecstatic. A million lives had been lost. Mm. We'd sacrificed quite a bit. But now it was going to end. It was going to come to an end. We poured out of our apartments in Ann Arbor, and it happened in Palo Alto and Cambridge and other college towns. We swirled around the city spontaneously and ended up on the steps of the president of the University of Michigan's home. And I had a bullhorn. I was the president of SDS, and he had a bullhorn. He was the president of the university. And we were bullhorning back and forth. <laughs> That's and, a different uh, time. Presidents Ooh. don't bullhorn yeah. back anymore. Yeah, no, bullhorns, <laughs> they release statements. Bullhorns were the thing. Yeah, um, yeah. Now, we got, now we got the uh, the mic check. Man, if but, you put your money in bullhorns, you took a hard loss. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. But, but the, the president of the university later in a memoir, he said that while he and I often disagreed, mm-hmm. that I was always articulate and firm. What I remember saying into my bullhorn that night was F-U-U-M-F, uh, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So, but that was articulate in 1968. <laughs> um, in any case, I... I with the other <laughs> so anyway, we thought the war would end and we were certain of it. Five days later, King was assassinated. Mm-hmm. A couple months later, Kennedy was assassinated. Mm-hmm. And a couple months later, Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon emerged from the swamps they were living in and <laughs> directed U.S. foreign policy. And what that meant was that the war in Vietnam would not end. It would escalate and become the war in Indochina, that every week 6,000 people would be murdered. Mm-hmm. Every week. It's hard to imagine that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the scale of that, mm-hmm. it dulls you after a while. It's like saying six million Jews. It's right. it's dulling. Yeah. But then you have to stop and say every one of those six million, every one of those 6,000 a week had a mother and a father, someone who cared for them, some pain, some suffering, some joy. And then you make it personal. For me, 6,000 people a week dying when we'd already done what we were told to do which was to organize the country to end the war. Mm. We'd already convinced a majority to end the war. Mm. The majority of the world wanted to end the war. The Vietnamese were winning. All of this was true, and we could not end it. Mm. And at that point, that was a crisis for democracy, a crisis for the anti-war movement, and we splintered. We splintered in in my own family. One of my brothers joined the Democratic Party Mm -hmm. and tried to build a peace wing. One of my siblings went to the communes of the Northeast. One jo- went to the factories. One joined the service hmm. and, and, and deserted. Um, hmm. And I did what I did. Uh, intent was drafted or ideologically joined the service? No, he actually had – he's a fascinating guy. He had gone to Canada to avoid the army. And then he, he opened a home for deserters and helped them get to Africa or Europe. And he did that for two years. And then he felt that he was copping out, that hmm. others of us were suffering more. And he came back to the United States and joined the service as a part of a group that was trying to organize a servicemen's union. Mm. Now you talk about a, a kamikaze mission. Yeah. So he was court-martialed very early. And, um, it's and, not funny he was yeah, court But just the, the timing no. of that, yeah, and, very, very quickly. That didn't and, he escaped, and he escaped, and he, um, he escaped from the brig, and he joined us. And um, mm. it's an interesting story in its own right. But so here's five siblings. I was one of them. But all of us were trying to figure out how do you end the war. What we did 
was to build an underground capacity to take the war to the war makers, to resist the, the serial assassination of black, mostly men, um, in the movement. And we felt that this was our kind of political responsibility. There was a lot that was weak about what we were doing, but I actually don't think any part of it was insane. Mm. I don't think any part of it was mentally deranged. You could argue about whether it was effective, but the funny thing about that is I have a very hard time saying what was effective. Was my brother joining the Democratic Party right. and getting McGovern nominated? Did that help? <laughs> I don't know. But what I do know is we get a lot of the hit back on us is you didn't shorten the war by a minute. But the reality is nobody can assess that. And mm. that kind of causal claim... Again, it's more complex. It's There's more complicated. Too many that, all, all kinds of things are going on. But what it makes me think of is when Zhou Enlai, the communist uh, revolutionary from China, premier of China, was asked by... I believe it was a, a French newspaper in the late 1940s, um, what was the impact of the French Revolution of the 18th century and the Chinese Revolution of the 20th century? And Joanne Lai said, it's too soon to tell. <laughs> and I, I think that's good. That's you know, great. And, and the thing is, I've lived long enough now to know that when I went to high school, slavery was portrayed in the common textbooks as, you know, an unfortunate thing that happened. Mm -hmm. We're now 50 years later, yeah. um, 60 years later, and we're saying, no, wait, when I went to high school, there were no slave narratives available. Now you wouldn't be able to understand or study slavery without slave narratives. There was no 1619 project. There was right. no Ta-Nehisi Coates. There was no James Baldwin. Mm. That all happened subsequent to my going to <laughs> high school. So mm. history is always being rewritten and re-understood. Right. But you read the 1619 project, and I urge everyone to read it. It's online. You can find yeah. it. You can understand that everything from our shitty educational system to our health care disparities, wealth disparities, and traffic jams in Atlanta and all warfare. can go back to slavery. Right. And, and I think that that's an important understanding that's important for us to, to grapple with. I'm very, uh, very pleased to see that kind of thing. But it goes for me back to Joanne Lai saying it's too soon to tell. Hmm. I have no idea what the impact – what I do know – is whatever I did in the 60s and 70s. And by the way, the 60s is myth and symbol. Right. Mm -hmm. Nobody looked at their watch on December 31st, 1969 and said, oh, shit, right, it's almost it over. Yeah, We're going home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's go get it's, laid. It's, 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 it's disco time now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Let's get high. No, nobody said that um, because we don't live by decades. We bleed into each this other. This is our so, mythologizing after the fact. So here we are in Chicago in 2019, 100 years from the killing of Eugene Williams on right. 31st Street Beach. And all that happened subsequent to Eugene Williams' killing, which Eve Ewing uses as a takeoff point for her brilliant book, 1919, you can't understand school segregation in Chicago without understanding the killing of Eugene Williams and the, and the white riot that took place afterwards. Um, I bike past that marker almost hmm. every day, and I, I have a little objection to the marker. It was put up by high school kids in the suburbs. And it begins with a um, quote from King saying, a riot is the, is the cry of the, mm -hmm. of the people who are not heard. And that may be true of some riots like Watts, but the white riot in Chicago in yeah. 1919 was not the unheard. <laughs> it was black GIs coming back from World War I saying, we're not going to take this crap anymore, and white mobs putting them right back in their place through systematic terrorism. Right. As I say, I was never a terrorist. <laughs> They were terrorists, yeah. and the Ku Klux Klan was a terrorist organization, and so on. Yeah. So, so you wouldn't define it for Bill Riley. I have been 
surveilled on Homeland Security terrorist list. Me they too. Eugene Williams. So, so you know, I think that it is. I'll just show my hand, right? Like it is a, a political construction. I don't actually think it's a real thing. I think it is a, a propaganda language. Um, yeah. I, and, and I think it also connect. It's a global way to connect also the anti-blackness that happens here. When McCarthy was still the superintendent at CPD, the, the way that he would use gang member was verbatim the way that we globally use terrorists Absolutely. as a way to dehumanize. Absolutely. And, and incidentally, we're still doing that in Chicago. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the gang designation. I got to tell you a word about my son in one minute, but you're absolutely, I agree with that. But I also think the war on terror is this kind of um, organizing metaphor, but it would be like declaring war on allergies. I don't even know what it means. You know, how would you know you won yeah. the war on allergies? Yeah. But, but At least terror. with allergies, you, you know there's dander. <laughs> Well, the other thing is sweep up the if, 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 if terrorism has a stable definition and it involves the targeting of innocent individuals to make a larger political statement and trying to rule by fear, mm-hmm. then yes, terrorism can be the work of a cult, a religious sect, or a government. And over the last hundred years, overwhelmingly, yeah. terrorism has been the work of governments. So in the Middle East right now, we like to talk about Palestinian terrorists. And it's true, there are acts that are terrorist acts. But it's also true that the state of Israel, with the backing of the United States, commits massive terror in the occupied territories again and again. But it doesn't get called by its name. So, yeah, I'm... Because I'm, the people who get to do the naming are the, are the state, right? So absolutely. Often, right. Some are freedom fighters and some are terrorists, right. you know? So it's, it's, and then, depending on in whose interest, our state might call one person a freedom fighter one week and a terrorist. The well, next exactly week, you know, right. So I just tell you one quick thing. Yeah. I know we're going to wind down. Your time, yeah. uh, I just tell you quickly that, I, as you know, I raised three. Um, Bernie and I raised three brilliant young men who are the light of our lives, and um, our youngest son, Chesa, we adopted when he was fourteen months old, and that story is told mm-hmm. largely in Public Enemy. His parents went to prison for life. His dad is still in prison 38 years later. Mm-hmm. His mom got out after 22 years and is the poster child of why people shouldn't do a long time in prison. She got a doctorate at Columbia University and started a center for justice and has made a huge impact on, on mass incarceration. But anyway, our youngest son is Chesa. He is now running for district attorney in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and he's been seven years a public defender. And this office opened up, and he's running uh, for district attorney on basically the stop the district attorney ticket. Um, <laughs> he, he, he's led this fight in California against cash bail, money yeah. bail, mm-hmm. uh, no child tied as an adult, closed juvenile hall, closed city jail number four, and on and on. Uh, he's been endorsed by Angela Davis, mm-hmm. and I was there when she endorsed him, and she said, I would never in my life have imagined I would endorse anybody for a job that involves caging people, but I actually believe Chase will decage, and uh, so look for him. Uh, you, you can find him online. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm really happy. I'm very proud of him. org. but I'm proud of all my guys. Malik's a 15-year-old, uh, 15-year veteran <laughs> middle school math teacher wow. um, just south of Oakland. Mm-hmm. And Zaid is a, a, a writer, a playwright, and a, and a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. So they're all doing great, and they're all moral people and, and decent guys. Mm-hmm. But I'm very excited about this moment for Chesa. Yeah. He has a, a, a good shot at becoming the district That's attorney. Amazing, yeah. 
And that was Kamala Harris's first job. <laughs> and boy, is he is he is he down on Kamala Harris? <laughs> That's when you talk about the yeah. complexity and the yeah. excitement of the moment. So exactly. be, before we get out of here, we'll do a checkout. But I, I have one do... last before we get out of here. So you do your last. I'll skip okay. my last. No, no, we could both. I could. Mine. Is, All right. I trust, so I trust you. you. I trust you. Ben. So uh, we have this mythical list of people that we want to talk to. You had been on the list a few times, especially as like I started to see you in space. Uh, but the timing of like, oh, let's do it right now was a listener. Saw me at the gym in the sauna, recognized me. Hmm. He said, you know what? You should have Bill on. Uh, He revealed, I was intrigued by him because he was a young white guy and he had a a, a very beautiful artisanal tattoo on his back shoulder and at the center of it was the African continent. Hmm. So I'm like, who is this white guy with Africa on his shoulder blade? But then with the 90s, oh, a Bill Ayer student. Okay, that kind of makes makes sense. And so he was like, you know, you should have Bill on and what I want to hear more about. He goes by Jersey now. You know Mm -hmm. Jersey? Yeah, it didn't seem like it was his real name, so you probably wouldn't know. It seemed like ten years ago or something. He was a student of yours, um, and what he asked is, "I want to hear more conversation about white masculinity and how it intersects with structural violence." Uh, we we talk a lot about violence. We talk a lot about masculinity and whiteness, but the the intersection specifically of how white men need to be accounted, particularly progressive, justice facing white men. Uh, wanted to define radical today, but we don't have time for that. Uh, but 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 because it was a listener request, I think that it is important to one shout out Jersey for for the, the push. But then both of you actually, da- Daniel and, yeah. and Bill, um, where is that in your thinking right now? Hmm. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. My first thought is that is the ways that myself and other people deflect or ge- or like genuflect in those conversations, right? So it's either like a total abdication, like you were talking about before, of like, oh no, I'm on the good side. Mm-hmm. Or it's a like conflation of multiple masculinities as being more shared than separate and, and not accounting for the specifics of it. I don't know. I, I I've spent a lot of time to the point that you were making earlier, Bill. It's about naming for myself what words (laughs) mean and then understanding the contradictions of the definition that I am choosing to believe from the definition that other people have either chosen or have just inherited, right? That if I can name something for myself, then I can do the work of helping people rename it for themselves and reimagine what it means for them. So it's not an abdication of like, I am uh, abdicating from whiteness or I'm abdicating from masculinity. It's I am choosing to define that more expansively and more restoratively and then helping other people do that act for themselves of redefining what that means. So that's a very individual definition of mm-hmm. that or my very individual answer. But I, I have seen so many times where for myself and others, if you don't do that individual work, the only thing you can do is feel like you should be quiet. And sometimes you should be quiet, but there are some rooms where you shouldn't be the quiet one. And the only way that I felt like I could have anything to say was if I actually had my own namings and my own definitions. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my answer. What do you I think? I think that's really helpful. But I, I, you know, I think that I have a couple of reactions. Uh, one is I'm wearing a bracelet that says John Brown lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> John Brown to me was a model of um, a white person who did the right thing at the right time. Um, he led the rebellion, you know, at yeah. Harper's Ferry, but he also fought in in bloody Kansas. Bloody Kansas got its name from him. 
Um, he was indicted by a grand jury, and he killed the grand jurors. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not recommending it. That's, a real, um, that's a real um, premise rejected. <laughs> I did not know that part of the story. But, uh, that's wild. That's an early example of flipping the script. <laughs> but to me, you know, there's a couple of things. One is that we live in a white supremacist society and that none of us can wish that out of existence. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that exists. And white supremacy is a structure and it's a system. And it's not something that anyone can opt out of um, or exactly opt into. So mm-hmm. everything is part of that. And we are in a battle about white supremacy and about male supremacy in this country. And you have to recognize what it is in order to resist it. We talk about privilege. People act as if, well, I didn't do anything and I I don't recognize my privilege. Recognize it because you walk down the street and you're wearing your privilege because of history, culture, law, and policy. And you, you have it. So it's important to remind yourself that you need to be educated. I'll give you one example. When I was first teaching at UIC, it took me two months not because I'm a bad person, but because I'm just a white dude, <laughs> a, a white male guy. It took me two months to notice that at 8 o'clock at night, the women all got together to go to the train or the parking lot. The men just went out. Now, why was that? It took me two months to notice it, and I finally said it to the women. Why do you gather? Guess what? We're not going out there alone at 8 o'clock at night. We have to be together. Oh, that's male privilege. Not something I asked for, not something I wallowed in, but something I had to learn in order to combat. So once that was recognized, then we could talk about it and do something about it. Very small example, but a metaphor for much larger things. I get impatient with men's groups and white groups that are trying to get themselves to be better people without engaging the world. So the book White Fragility is a phrase I love, but the book actually left me a little bit disappointed. Yeah, because because what is the... What is the action that's required at the end of understanding that white people are so fragile that they can't talk about it? The answer is to do more work on yourself and to become a better, (laughs) even a better anti-racist person who will object to racism whenever you see it. And by the way, you can pay $275 and she'll teach you. And she'll take a workshop. Yeah. But the thing that we- It's a hell of a hustle. It's a great hustle. But one of the things (laughs) that that we have to deal with, and this is true all the time, but we use the word racism to mean two quite distinct things. It means bigotry and backwardness and ignorance Mm -hmm. on the one hand, and it means structures of of law and policy and politics that are in place. So we get agitated. I heard this last night on the debate stage, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm no racist. I'm not a racist. He is a racist. You know, Trump's a racist. That misses so much of the point. So Donald Sterling lost his NBA franchise for saying the N-word. He didn't lose it for being a slumlord. Right. Yeah. Right. He actually didn't even say the N word. That's right. Said, that's said, right. He didn't. You're exactly he said right. African American. Yeah. He said that's black right. with that. With he just he yeah. had that really thick. That's L exactly yeah. right. <laughs> thick L and hard K. That's exactly Don't right. Don't the black guys. And, and so game. when people say I'm not a racist, they're thinking of Donald Sterling or they're thinking of Clive and Bundy, mm-hmm. but they're not thinking of Rahm Emanuel who closed 52 schools. Right. Rahm Emanuel would never use the N word, but yet he will close the schools. So who's the racist? And I think it's hugely important that we understand even. Even the language, so white fragility makes me, um, leaves me a little cold. I think the language of allies leaves me cold. Mm -hmm. I think that we don't need allies so much as we need comrades. Comrades stand shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, take the risks, are willing to um, back each other up. And 
what the Panthers used to say to us is we don't want you to help us. We want you to be revolutionaries, overthrow the government. You know, and okay, if we overthrew the government, you know, that would be a real help. Right? <laughs> so, so the point is the term ally has the whiff of charity about it. Yeah. I'm going to bring you up to my level. Right. But, the, but solidarity, comrades, I, I was in a coffee shop the, not long ago, and I said to the barista as he handed me the coffee, thanks, comrade. And he leaned in and said conspiratorially, how'd you know I was a communist? And I said, <laughs> I just guessed. <laughs> you know, I didn't it's a know. very particular coffee shop. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I just feel if you're that exploited, you ought to be a communist. <laughs> but, but I think that's what we need. We need to get beyond the idea that it's an individual flaw within individual white people. It's a structure that's invisible. And the thing about privilege is that it's meant to be invisible. Right. When you're riding your bike on the lake and you've never ridden faster, and then you turn around and realize the wind was at your back, that's what we witness with white supremacy hmm. or male supremacy. The wind is always at your back. Right. And you don't know it because you can't feel it and you can't see it. Right. But the reality is if you take one minute to take off your blinders and your blinkers, you can see it. And then you have a responsibility to yourself as a human being and to the rest of humanity to say, this won't stand. Yeah. I will end this. And now, as I say, we're witnessing the latest upheaval in a centuries-old struggle. You can join. There yeah. are ways. Be willing to look into the Be wind. Be willing to find a way in. Yeah. And, you know, I remember Charlie Cobb, who was a comrade in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and really the brain of Charlie Cobb started the Freedom Schools. And Charlie was up in Chicago recently for the uh, anniversary of the uh, Chicago Freedom Movement. And at a panel discussion, some old guy stood up and said, you know, Charlie, why don't the young people come to this meeting? Why aren't there more young people in this meeting? And Charlie said, without missing a beat, do you go to the young people's meetings? Mm -hmm. He yeah. said, do they have meetings? Yeah, do <laughs> pay attention. <laughs> pay attention. <laughs> well, they're meeting. They may be meeting at a poetry slam. They may yeah. be meeting at a concert. But believe me, shit is happening. Yeah. So don't be so <laughs> stuck in your own narcissistic worldview. Get the hell out of the off the couch now and then yeah. and, and play a role. Yeah. Last question. So we, we mentioned the mountain lions at the beginning. <sighs> and you talked about spending some time in some rural spaces. And we spent a lot of time talking about the ways that people exist when they're living right up against each other. And, and I don't think we spend enough time talking about like the reality of rurality and, and understanding that that is the majority of the space of this country and that there are lots of people who live in that environment. So are there any lessons either from the physical space and then encounter with a mountain lion or an osprey or from the experience of being off this other roller coaster <laughs> yeah. and in the wind for, for, for decades? Well, I'll tell you a little bit. Yeah, I, I can tell you a little bit about it. I mean, I was... When we were on the run, we were part of a, a one of the groups that protected us was a commune out in California, one of the earliest communes, very political commune. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the only thing we were part of. We were part of a thousand things, but that was one thing. And when we came above ground, a group of us from that commune and from us uh, bought some land in common. And so we have a piece of land in common in the wilderness of California. Mm -hmm. For the last 40 years, going there for a month or two months uh, a year. One of the things that's important is to not have access to a cell phone, internet, or anything, um, television, and to disconnect. And the reason I, I like it is, is that it's, it's a, a form of refreshment. I couldn't do it forever. I would go crazy. <laughs> um, but I think there's something about, there's a combination of things that have been true in my life. We talked about Jimmy and Grace Lee Boggs. To know people like that, 
uh, to know people like Barbara Ransby or Eve Ewing or Miriam Kaba, to know people who really stand up and make a difference moves me beyond my uh, deepest understanding, just to know that people can stand up against injustice, can make a difference, can speak out, can have a voice. All that stuff matters to me, can be recognized <laughs> for their full humanity. And then I balance that with the fact that I walk along late at night out in the country where there's no light pollution from the city, mm. where you can actually see the Milky Way uh, in sharp definition. Mm. And I realize that we're just a little speck of nothing floating through the cosmos, you know? And there's something about that dialectic, the huge importance of every individual and the absolute nothingness of my own Small life. Small insignificant. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that actually gives me energy and, mm. and gives me perspective. I also think it's really important. I was standing in line at the driver's license bureau this morning talking to an elderly black man who we got moved to the front line because we're old. And so we got to be in the front. And so we spent 15 minutes talking to each other. And he was telling me about his brother who passed away. And I was telling him about my brother who passed away. And we both agreed that there's something about knowing that your life is going to end that makes living absolutely tingling and brilliant. You know, mm -hmm. that if he said, what would it be like if everybody lived forever? That'd be crazy. Yeah, no shit, because, <laughs> because it'd be crowded for one thing. Yeah. But for another thing, it's actually what gets us up in the morning yeah. is the, the realization this will not go on and the illusion that where you are now is where you'll always be. So I sometimes remind my students, 100 years from now, everybody you're seeing today will not be here. Yeah. Only 100 years yeah. from now. Yeah. And okay, I'm 75, so it's coming sooner for me likely, but everybody you see, mm -hmm. including that little baby, isn't going to yeah. be here. Mm -hmm. So let's take the time we have and treat it as precious and urgent because it is, mm -hmm. and it's all we got. Mm -hmm. And uh, here we are. Yeah, right. let's. Yeah, that's right. we can. yeah, yeah. That's that's beautiful. So we we do a closeout. Uh, we also want to play a game, but we definitely have time for that. A few words or feelings or expressions that are sitting with you, threads that feel in, incomplete, things that are on your heart. Just just to close out. Came out from the uh, conversation. Yeah. yeah. So for me, a few things that I was curious about that didn't get to is wanting to build some like communal definitions of violence and of radicality. And so I would love to have a part two with you in the next year or two if we could get some more of your time. And the idea of ground, right? Like the language of above and underground. Like I think yeah. that's really poetic. Yeah, let's do that. What does it mean to be grounded? Let's do that. But, you know, when it, like all the other things we've talked about, you know, violence that's talked about in the media or in the, the established policy is always the violence that you can see. Right. But what's not talked about is the violence that's there every minute of every day. Mm -hmm. um, a kid dying of pneumonia that's, that's curable, that's an act of violence quietly executed. Right. And we need to talk about structural violence as well as individual acts, which are much less significant and much less destructive. So, yeah. so we'll put that on the list. All right. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then question <laughs> asking, because I've heard you say that that is what education and learning is about, and that's what we do here. So uh, I, I feel honored to be connected to your legacy is something that I'm leaving with. And I feel honored to hear an example of somebody finding comfort in the discomfort of tension and contradiction. Thank you so much for having me. And and we didn't get back to the syllabus and reading, so we'll do that too. We got to have a part two. Um, I love the way you're in on the, um, whether it's a cosmic joke or the that cosmic perspective that you talked about at the end. I would have guessed that you think about it that way, just from how you have moved through this conversation and, and what it is you do. But it 
it is the only thing that I find solace in. <laughs> and so I, it's very reassuring to hear it talk, to hear you talk about how important it is for you and for you last like thought word, something from the conversation that's sticking with you. Well, you know, to me, one of the things that I think is so great about what y'all are doing mm-hmm. is that dialogue is all we have. And, and it's, and it's uh, to create it as an art form, to make it a serious sustained art form is absolutely right. You know, when you think of art, uh, you know, it's not what's locked up in a museum. You make an art out of creating your own life. You make an art out of creating mm-hmm. a conversation. You make an art out of a love affair. That's, you know, to me, where art lives. And I'm always reminded of Gwendolyn Brooks, a great Chicago poet, who said, does man love art? And her response, man visits art but cringes. Art <laughs> urges voyages. And you're urging a voyage, so oh, I appreciate that. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. Thank you so much, Bill. We'll be back next week with another person reshaping the culture of our city for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Hey, Dame. What's up, Kiss? I want you to meet my friend Miriam here. Hey, Miriam. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Miriam is my oldest friend in the world. The whole world. And she is a devoted podcast listener. Are you? I am. Oh, well, that's love. I don't even just, I don't mean our podcast. I just mean podcasts in general. Okay. I love podcasts. How, how do you usually find your podcast? What do you listen to them on? <sighs> The iTunes mm. app. Yeah, I know. Very basic. You're not thrilled with it? It isn't the best. Well, the good news is we actually have a recommendation for you. Oh, yeah? Well, Ergo is sponsored by Overcast. It's an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. Man, it's for the people. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls. Just a great podcast app for everyone. Get it free in the App Store where you get all the other things. That yeah. You you going to check it out? Sounds amazing. Cool. We won you over. Look how effective this ad is. <gasps> yeah. Pay, pay us more money, folks. <laughs> that's that's advertising in action. You see? Works. <laughs> see, that's how good we are at selling things. We're doing this. Hey, yo, Harold, hit me up, man. I am an advocate and I can market your stuff because look how great we just marketed Overcast. We just gave an ad for them and an ad for us. I think it's time to get the fuck out of here. Let's do it. <laughs> 